Hello, and welcome back to the Caliphs, the rise and fall of Arab power. My name is Zaid Wahab, and today we will discuss how Muawiyah's plans for succession played out. We will properly introduce his son Yazid, refresh our memories on the tribal situation within the Caliphate, and see how the new Caliph dealt with the notable Qurayshi resistance we outlined last time. We've got an eventful few years to get through in episode 21, Yazid bin Muawiyah. In his 20 years or so in charge, Muawiyah ruled the Arabs in ways both new and familiar. He leaned heavily on his people's tribal tendencies, using them to empower those close to him and limit the influence of any clans or leaders of whom he was wary. The end results were mixed but hardly surprising. Those with strong ties to the Umayyads flourished, while the tribes which had resisted their rise to power were ostracized. In defiant provinces like Iraq and the Arabian Peninsula, the caliph gave his governors a wide mandate, permitting them to deal with the men under their charge in ways that went far beyond what any of his predecessors had allowed. We've already gone through the traditions he appealed to and the changes he introduced, and overall I think it's fair to say that he picked his battles carefully. He rarely shied away from making the most out of his many advantages, but he understood his power had limits and he never pushed beyond what he felt the caliphate's fragile state could handle. Muawiyah also appreciated just how fraught the matter of succession was, and how mishandling such a volatile topic could tear the ummah apart. Muawiyah nominated his son Yazid to succeed him, a choice which already revealed the caliph's awareness of the limits of his authority. Muawiyah, the proud leader of Quraysh's noblest clan, had an older son from a Qurayshi wife, and yet that man was entirely overlooked for the role of caliph. Yazid may have been younger, but he was the eldest of Muawiyah's children from the wife he took when he became governor of Syria, a daughter of the chief of Kelb, the most influential of the region's Qahtani tribes. Muawiyah knew that Yazid's nomination would ensure overwhelming Syrian support, a prerequisite for maintaining Umayyad domination. Whereas the early caliphate was united in spirit around Quraysh, things were very different barely a generation later. Having been ruled by the same man for over 40 years, almost 20 of them with Muawiyah as caliph of the entire ummah, the Syrians were now the only force united enough to present a stable power base. Honestly, I could stop talking about the tribal breakdown of the ummah right now as far as this episode is concerned, but the topic will become increasingly significant going forward, so we might as well discuss it a little. For now, I just want to make sure it's framed correctly. Otherwise, you might get the wrong idea about the split between Adnani and Qahtani Arabs. Remember, according to Arab lore, Adnan and Qahtan were two descendants of the Prophet Abraham, whom all Arabs consider themselves descended from. The thing is, Arab tribes fought one another quite often without paying any attention to this ancestral aspect of their identity. Leave a bunch of tribes together long enough, and they would find a reason to raid one another before too long. During times of great change, however, for example, when a bunch of tribes moved in from a different region, the dynamics would shift. The tribes moving together would already have some strong bonds, leading the tribes being encroached upon to unite around the fact that they were there first. And given the patriarchal culture, 
that pretty much always meant appealing to some common ancestor. So in conclusion, tribes were autonomous when they felt secure, and they formed these large, loose coalitions to fend off larger threats. Okay, with that said, let us get back to our story. In order to improve Yazid's chances, Muawiyah had given him some prominent roles within the caliphate. We mentioned his leading a high-profile raid during the siege of Constantinople, but he also led others, and even the Hajj, the annual pilgrimage, once or twice. When he wasn't in some cushy command, Yazid loved to go out on a hunt, and that's what he was up to when news of his father's passing first reached him. He rode back to Damascus, where people quickly pledged allegiance to him at the mosque after Muawiyah's burial on the 7th of April, 680. We don't really have very much about the new caliph, and we must resort to gleaning impressions about his upbringing from what we know about his father's life and circumstances. Our sources do tell us that Yazid was large, meaty, and hairy, but those aren't exactly the attributes I'm interested in exploring. Yazid was born after Muawiyah had become governor and was barely a teenager when the Battle of Safin took place, meaning he grew up during his father's sharpest rise to power. The Umayyads became the de facto rulers of the caliphate in his early twenties, and his mother's tribe, the Kalb, had been considered the leaders of the local Qahtani tribes for longer than anyone could remember. So by all means, Yazid had it good from day one. A couple of our moderate sources fault him for not being serious enough, and for spending too much time, quote, dancing on drums and playing with his pet monkey. Many others charge him with being a big drinker, something that pro-Umayyad accounts are scandalized by and deny vehemently. It's tempting to justify these charges of being a party boy by extrapolating from the privilege he grew up surrounded by, but I suppose that's no way of proving a point, so who knows. I don't really care for this gossipy part of history, and in any case, we have much more important developments to get to. You may remember that I mentioned some advice Muawiyah had left his son from his deathbed, but I feel that there would be real value in paraphrasing his last letter for you now. So here we go. Quote, My son, I have worked to prepare things for you. I have humiliated your enemies and won submission from the Arabs. Regard the Peninsula's tribes. They are our origin. Be generous to those who ally with you and shame those who splinter our unity. Regard the tribes of Iraq. Change their governors every day if they demand it, for it is easier than dealing with a hundred thousand drawn swords. Regard the tribes of Syria. They are your shield and power. Use them against your foes and return them to their lands often so they never change their ways. There are only four for you to worry about. Abdurrahman, son of Abu Bakr, Abdullah, son of Omar, Hussein, son of Ali, and Abdullah, son of Al-Zubayr. The son of Omar is too pious to bear disunity, and the son of Abu Bakr is an unserious womanizer who poses no real threat. If Hussein is tempted by the Iraqis to defy your authority, be gentle with him, as he was close to the Prophet, and his clan has already lost much. The one who is stalking you like a beast is Ibn Zubayr, and if he dares step out of line, then cut him to little pieces. Use his treachery to send a message. Muawiyah just lays it out so plainly in his final letter to his son that I thought, why bother reframing things, you know? Of course, Yazid got the message loud and clear, and he immediately sent orders to his governor of Medina, telling him to make sure that Hussein and Ibn Zubayr both pledged their allegiance immediately. That's about the last detail which the different retellings of this story agree on, and their variety is all about how the two Qurayshi elders managed to escape to Mecca without giving their pledges. 
They either refused the governor outright in a private meeting, then left the city, or told him they'd pledge publicly in the morning and snuck away in the night. I should note that these evasions were not considered dishonorable, as the man they had pledged to obey, Muawiyah, was now dead and gone. Al-Hussein and Abdullah ibn Zubayr had many supporters in their hometown of Mecca, but just because they had refused to offer a hasty pledge to Yazid didn't mean that they were going to rush into a war with him. When the new caliph's men approached them to inquire about their intentions, unable to take more forceful measures in such a solidly anti-Umayyad town, Ibn Zubayr declared that he was only seeking sanctuary in the holy city, which I guess was a way of appealing to its sacred status for protection. Fighting had always been forbidden around Mecca's Kaaba, even before Islam. Just because I'm discussing al Hussein and Ibn Zubayr jointly doesn't mean that they were on the same side. After all, there was only room for one man at the top. While Ibn Zubayr worked on appealing to the peninsula's tribes, we're told Al-Hassan kept getting more and more promises of support, mainly from Iraq, but other regions sometimes as well. His clan's history of resistance against the Umayyads made him a natural choice for the many tribes unhappy with how their latest caliph had been chosen for them. After the arrival of one Kufan delegation with over 150 letters from various partisans in the city begging him to return so that they could pledge their allegiance in person, Al-Hussein was moved into action. After some consideration, he decided to send his cousin and trusted confidant, Muslim bin Aqil, to feel things out. All this caution was necessary, though evading Yazid's requests and fleeing Medina clearly signaled greater ambitions. One could only be accused of being a danger to the Ummah's unity if they nominated themselves to the role of caliph and actively invited others to pledge their allegiance, a Rubicon which neither Al-Hussein nor Ibn Zubayr felt comfortable crossing just yet. When Al-Hussein's emissary, Muslim, arrived in Kufa, he found most of the city's elders very sympathetic to the Hashemite cause, with many saying they were eager for Al-Hussein to come and lead them on a quest to restore the caliphate. He wrote to his cousin back in Mecca with reassuring descriptions of the support he could expect to find and urged him to make his move soon. But unlike Mecca, Kufa was no holy city, and after hearing of Muslims' activities there, the caliph replaced its governor with someone he trusted to deal with sedition quickly and effectively. Ubaidullah ibn Ziyad was the son of the Dahiyya governor of Iraq and the East. While his father Ziyad was known for his harshness during his tenure in Iraq, it never spilled over into outright brutality, and his most scandalous episode had been his execution of a number of Hashemite partisans when he was first put in charge of Kufa. His son doesn't seem to have inherited his talents for administration, nor his skills at tribal politics. Muawiyah had made Ubaidullah governor of Khurasan for a spell, a position which had him constantly warring for tribute around the eastern borders of the caliphate. He was later made governor of Basra, and maybe it was his military background, but he quickly earned a reputation for severity and vanity. If his father had been unafraid to make an example out of some poor soul every once in a while, Ubaidullah was a lot more liberal with his use of violence, often flaunting it as a way of impressing his superiors with the lengths he was willing to go for them. It was this ruthless commander with something to prove whom Yazid picked as Kufa's new governor, and Ubaidullah's first task was obviously to nip this whole insurrection in the bud by taking care of Al-Hussein's cousin, Muslim. So far, I've been rendering the multiple versions we have in our sources into a single account, as there are way too many to cover for these controversial events. 
I did want to make an exception and point out an especially unlikely narration I came across, one about how Ubaidullah dealt with Muslim after he'd become the governor of Kufa. It says that Muslim went into hiding when Ubaidullah was appointed to avoid any conflict, staying with a tribal leader from among the city's many Hashemite sympathizers. Ubaidullah found out about this arrangement through some spies, and he summoned and violently interrogated the man who'd given Muslim shelter. Muslim then realized that these developments meant it was now or never. If Kufa were to remain capable of pledging to his cousin Hussein, Muslim had to oust the new governor before he could secure the city for the caliph. He rallied his supporters and marched to the palace, surrounding it with thousands of partisans, trapping Ubaidullah inside with 30 tribal elders whom he had called upon precisely to ensure that their tribes didn't rebel against his authority. Ubaidullah then issued grave threats to these leaders, who proceeded to appeal to their kinsmen outside and turn them away from Muslim's push against the governor. And in just a few hours, Muslim was the one with a mere 30 supporters. He was forced into hiding again, but was discovered by one of the tribal leaders most loyal to the Umayyad cause, Muhammad ibn al-Ash'ath, the son of none other than the Yemenite lord so often blamed for betraying the Hashemite cause. Muhammad ibn al-Ash'ath denied Muslim's request to inform al-Husayn of the treachery of the Kufan tribes, and he handed him over to Ubaidullah, who quickly executed him and sent his head to Yazid in Damascus. So this story seems pretty lazily put together, right? I especially mean the part where Muslim goes from thousands of supporters to just 30 in no time thanks to 30 tribal elders. But overlooking these obvious flaws, the narration aims to bridge the gap between depictions of Kufa as solidly pro-Hashemite and its quick submission to Ubaidullah, a transformation it attributes to the influence of the city's tribal elders. I think there are two takeaways here. The first is that Hashemite support in the city wasn't really all that overwhelming. And the second is that most of Kufa's leaders were just trying to use the fragile period during the transition of power to get Yazid to pay them more attention and patronage. And what better way of helping the new caliph recognize their importance than by steering the pot a little? Back in Mecca, after reflecting on Muslims' early letters about how promising the situation in Kufa was, Al-Husayn became convinced that it was time to head to Iraq. In questionable conversations reported to us from this period, it seems he was discouraged from this course of action by almost everybody, especially his father's cousin Abdullah ibn al-Abbas and his half-brother Muhammad ibn al-Hanafiya. They called the tribes of Kufa, quote, fickle worshippers of the dirham, and they warned al-Husayn about the heedless brutality of Yazid and his commanders. The only one who encouraged the Hashemites to make the trip was Ibn Zubayr, his rival for influence among the opposition, who is portrayed as eager to get al-Husayn out of the city so he could monopolize the whole resistance scene. Despite the many warnings from his supporters, and more worryingly as far as I'm concerned encouragement from his rival, al-Husayn decided to head to Kufa, taking with him almost 100 members of his immediate family. He was not too far from the city when news reached him of Muslims' fate, and we're told some in his entourage thought it would be better to turn back than risk the life of the Prophet's grandson, while others felt that abandoning their aims would betray Muslims' sacrifice. It wasn't too long before an army sent by the governor surrounded them and demanded al-Husayn's immediate submission to Yazid's authority. Negotiations did not go well, and on the 10th of October 680, the thousand-strong army proceeded to massacre everyone but the Hashemite women and children, who were subsequently sent to the caliph in Damascus. 
Out of respect for religious sensibilities, I feel it is necessary to tread lightly here, and so I have elected to avoid getting into the subject any further. The killing of Al-Hussein ibn Ali was a deeply polarizing event, often quoted as being the true fissure at the heart of the Sunnah-Shia split. Although religious differences between the two sects were still a few generations away, the claim is still a defensible one, as it was their insistence on commemorating this tragedy that first marked the Shia as a distinct community. It remains the most important religious event in the Shia calendar, referred to as Ashura, and it is marked over ten days of mourning, which center on the tale of Hussein's martyrdom in dramatic detail. The impact this Hashemite massacre had on the Ummah will become increasingly apparent as we move forward. It is probably the main reason why Yazid and Ubaidullah are described so unfavorably in our sources, whose portrayals of the pair range from the horrified to the scornful. Writing a few centuries later, our authors were vividly aware of the consequences their impetuous actions had, and the trope of the prodigal child is widely applied to the two sons of Duhat, as men who inherited and squandered great power after having been spoiled by its trappings growing up. The immediate reactions to Hussein's killing were shock and outrage. The move played entirely into the hands of the Umayyad's enemies. Hashemite sympathies soared, the ranks of the Karajites swelled with new supporters, and Ibn Zubayr's campaign back in Mecca capitalized on both. While he still claimed to just be a seeker of sanctuary, a sort of conscientious objector to Yazid's ascension, I guess, Ibn Zubayr had begun accepting pledges of allegiance in secret by Yazid's second year in command. While he couldn't risk publicly challenging the caliph before, the outpouring of support his cause found after the Hashemite massacre must have convinced him the time was right. One day he forcefully replaced the man the caliph had appointed to lead prayers in Mecca and called those in attendance to pledge to him, promising to rid them of the heartless tyrant in Damascus claiming to be caliph and to afterwards convene a shura or election council to determine the next true leader of the ummah. This won him the support of the majority of Quraysh's other clans, and even that of the people of Medina, who had long borne a grudge against the Umayyads, and were eager to see them replaced. Ibn Zubayr even adopted the motto, No Judgment But Gods, honing in on that Karajite vote, who continued to be a powerful force in Basra and Bahrain on the east of the Arab Peninsula. Ibn Zubayr quickly translated all this momentum into action and before too long both Mecca and Medina had rebelled against Umayyad authority. Yazid replaced their governors, but there wasn't much they nor their replacements could do, as the locals were united and unrelenting in their disobedience. The caliph then decided to try another approach, and he invited leaders from among the aggrieved tribes to come visit his court in Damascus, including Ibn Zubayr's brother Mundir. Most sources agree that Yazid was very consolatory when he met with them, and showered them with gifts and riches. When they returned to Medina, however, they disparaged the caliph as a weakling, better suited to dancing to flutes at his parties with his wine, pets, and slave girls. Why miss a chance to use the prodigal child trope, right? This open defiance was a call to rebellion against the caliphate, and many rushed to pledge their allegiance to Ibn Zubayr. Things escalated before Yazid had a chance to react to all these developments, and a thousand men in Medina ousted the Umayyad governor and laid siege to the house of Marwan in the city. It was a large residence in which most of the Umayyad clansmen resided under Marwan's generosity. Let's turn our attention back to Damascus, 
where having blundered one half of his father's advice regarding his challengers, Yazid seemed to be on track to blunder the other. He wouldn't even have heard of the sudden entrapment of his clan in Medina if it weren't for Marwan's quick-witted son, Abdul Medik, who managed to sneak a messenger out to the caliph. When Yazid heard the news, he decided it was time for a military solution, and he sent a Syrian army of between four and 12,000 men, depending on who you're reading, with orders to offer the people of Medina three days to surrender. If they refused, his armies had orders to take it by force, and they were granted license to loot the city for three days afterwards to teach its people a lesson. This all took place sometime in early 683. When the people of Medina heard about the army being mobilized their way, they tightened their siege of the Umayyads before deciding it was best to expel them instead. They also dug a trench around the city, a tactic the Prophet had used to fend against the Qurayshi alliance, which outnumbered his ummah during his final battle with the tribe a generation earlier. The outcast Umayyads ran into the Syrian army after a few days of trekking in the desert, and the same son of Marwan who'd sent news of the nascent rebellion, Abdul Medik, gave their commander valuable information and tactical advice. The 2,000 or so defenders of Medina remained unrepentant, negotiations broke down pretty quickly, and the battle which followed was a one-sided affair in which the rebels were trounced with many of their leaders killed. This was a huge blow to Ibn Zubayr's seemingly desperate quest to rival the Umayyads, and it left Mecca as the last remaining city in open rebellion. The sack of Medina which followed in the late summer of 683 was another dark spot on Yazid's legacy, one that fills our sources with indignation, aimed particularly at the caliph and the commander in charge of the army he had sent. When that commander abruptly passed away on his way to besiege Mecca, many narrations saw it as a clear example of divine retributions, but his death didn't slow down the Syrian armies who kept marching towards their final target. Sending an army to war within the sacrosanct bounds of the holy city was strike three for Yazid in our sources. The city's shrine even caught fire at some point, though it seems like it was one of Ibn Zubayr's supporters who accidentally started the blaze. Yazid usually catches the blame, though, and most narrations use the whole siege as a teaching moment about how the ummah falls apart when the religion is thus disrespected. Things were looking pretty dire for Ibn Zubayr when all of a sudden our sources get an even more convincing example of divine retribution. Closer to a miracle, really. In early November of 683, while his army was laying siege to Mecca and getting dangerously close to capturing Ibn Zubayr and ending all resistance to his authority, Yazid bin Muawiyah died in his palace in a Syrian town called Hawarin. He was 40 years old. There is disagreement on whether it was a hunting accident, a drinking accident, or a disease, but whatever it was, it came out of nowhere. My money is on some kind of plague, as there are just way too many rich people abruptly dropping dead. We've spent Yazid's entire reign discussing his response to the two challengers to his authority. It's what our sources mostly focus on during this chaotic period, but they also point out that Yazid extended the treaty his father had entered into with the Byzantines and reorganized the forces along their border in Homs. His changes incidentally split the large army previously loyal to Abd al-Rahman bin Khalid ibn al-Walid, and he created a new province around the city of Qansarin in northern Syria. You can find a map on the episode's page on thecaliphs.com. Yazid had come to power because he could rely on the overwhelming support of the Syrian tribes, 
whom he descended from on his mother's side. By the time of his death, the leader of the Kalb was an Ibn Bahdal, Yazid's direct cousin and governor of Jordan and Palestine. Within days of the Caliph's passing, Ibn Bahdal rallied his supporters around Yazid's eldest son, a 19-year-old named Muawiyah. We know even less about this Muawiyah, and all we are told is that he was a sickly young man who died within months of being pledged to in Damascus. More divine retribution according to our sources, though I find it helps my plague thesis more. So already by 684, less than four years after the death of the dynasty's founder, Muawiyah II was being buried in the capital, and the future of the caliphate looked increasingly uncertain. It'll take a while for this news to travel to the front, where the Syrian armies were still laying siege to Mecca. To hear what happened when it did, join me next time, here on The Caliphs, The Rise and Fall of Arab Power. <laughs>